Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This podcast includes discussion of self-harm and suicide. Please listen with care. Kia ora, ko William Ray tēnei. No mai ki te hipi pāngo. Hi there, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. We're in downtown San Francisco. It's early in the morning, February 16th, 1930. Parts of the city look familiar. For one thing, even back in those days, the streets were choked with traffic. But the famous Golden Gate Bridge wouldn't start construction for another three years and there are only a handful of skyscrapers. Most buildings only reach about ten storeys. Inside one of those buildings, just a couple of blocks from City Hall, Dr Roy Copeland is climbing the stairs to his office. Dr Copeland's a chiropractor and he's arriving at work a bit early this morning. He steps into the corridor and makes the way to his office. But then he sees something odd. The door to the office beside his is wide open. Dr Copeland looks at the door curiously. He reads the plaque on the front. Dr Hjalmar Danival. Dr Copeland doesn't know Dr Danival very well. The two have talked enough that he knows Danival's enthusiastic about radical ideas in health. Danival had a special box and claimed it could diagnose and treat any illness using electricity and radiation, plus a sample of the patient's blood. Copeland hesitates. Dr. Danival, hello? Are you there? Copeland walks up to the door and peers inside. Slumped on the floor is a body. A few hours later, an ambulance takes Dr. Danival's body down to the morgue. There's no sign of foul play, but there's some suspicion the death could be a suicide, so an autopsy's ordered. But as the mortician gets to work and removes Danival's clothing, he discovers something which astonishes him. Dr. Hjalmar Danival was a woman. The Associated Press caught wind of the story and wrote up an article which was published across the United States. Death today has ended the masquerade of Dr. Helmar W.D. Danival, 70. A woman who for 12 years lived and worked in San Francisco, dressed always as a man. Reading that article in modern times, your mind might go one of a few places. First, you might wonder if Dr. Danival had a trans or non-binary gender identity. Next, you might wonder if Dr. Danival was some kind of con artist. Long-time Black Sheep fans will remember the story of Amy Bock, a serial trickster who spent months pretending to be a wealthy young man while carrying out a bewildering array of scams in late 19th century New Zealand. 
That brief article about Hjalmar by the Associated Press never made it across the Pacific to New Zealand. But if it had, it probably would have sparked some wider interest. Because there were a lot of people in New Zealand familiar with the name Hjalmar Danival. A handful might remember how she entertained Wellington High Society with her piano recitals and stories of overseas adventures as a journalist and medical researcher. A few might recall her involvement in a scandalous divorce involving a high society woman from Whanganui. But many more people would remember that in 1917, in the middle of the First World War, Hjalmar Danival was accused of spying for the German government and locked up in the Matthew Soames Island internment camp, the only woman to be held at the facility. Hjalmar Danival's life was nothing if not eventful. The archives had a file on Dr Danival. It reads like, you know, this insane travel log, a fantasy. You just can't believe that this person did these things. And are they making it all up? This is Julie Glamuzina. A few years back, she wrote a fascinating biography about this whole saga, Spies and Lies, the Mystery of Dr. Danibal. Now, usually we like to go way back to the beginning of our black sheep story, talk about where they were born, who their parents were, what life was like growing up. And we can't really do that for Hjalmar Danibal. I'll explain why a bit later in the podcast. Instead, we'll start with her arrival in New Zealand. Danaville arrived in Wellington aboard the SS Arawa in February 1911. She was 49 years old and had set sail from England a month and a half earlier with another woman, 33-year-old Sarah Womersley. Hjalmar said she'd come to the country for the sake of Sarah, who she described as a close friend. She said her friend was uh, not well and you know weak constitution and she thought um, you know this country would be better for her. And she'd have a better chance of, uh, you know, living longer if she came to a better climate. And this was actually quite a common thing, wasn't it? Because people would come mm. if they had like TB or something. There was some belief that like the air in New Zealand would would cure you. Yeah, correct, correct. But Julie Glomazina doubts a healthy climate was the only thing which drew Danaville to New Zealand. Um, in my mind, anyway, it's pretty clear that she came here because of Dr. Edith Huntley. Dr. Edith Huntley was a famous and somewhat controversial woman. She was one of only a handful of female doctors in Wellington. Otago Medical School had only started accepting its first female students in the mid-1890s. Dr. Huntley was, was one of the first women who attained a medical degree. And once she'd done that, she went to India to work with Indian women as a doctor And uh, she was based in Simla, which was, I think, Shimla, where the British colonial powers spent their summers. So it was like the summer capital for them. Hilma Danival was there at the same time at one point. So I think it's very likely that they met and knew each other, most likely there, but could have also been in um, England. We don't know anything definite about this first meeting between Hjalmar Danival and Edith Huntley, but it seems likely the two found a lot in common. Dr Huntley had travelled all over the world, climbing the Swiss Alps, hiking through Scandinavia, visiting Afghanistan, China and Tibet. Hjalmar Danival 
also claimed to have crossed the globe as a medical researcher and journalist. She introduced herself as Dr. Von Danival, suggesting that not only was she qualified as a medical practitioner, but also that she had an aristocratic title. And if you're hearing some scepticism in my voice, well, we'll come back to that. It seems likely these two women stayed in touch after Dr. Huntley returned to New Zealand from India, and that in 1911, Dr. Huntley invited Hilmar Danival and Sarah Womersley to come work at a new practice she was establishing, the Lehman Health Home in Miramar. By 1912, the Lehman Home was advertising itself like this in the newspapers. The Lehman Home, for the treatment of chronic complaints on the natural cure system, originated by the late Dr. Lehman, Dresden, and successfully practised by him and by others for many years in Europe. Complaints treated include uric acid in its various manifestations, nervous breakdown or neurasthenia, dyspepsia, anemia, obesity, Bright's disease, cancer, asthma, diabetes, insomnia... The Lehman Home practised what we'd now call alternative medicine. It was named after a German doctor, Heinrich Lehmann, who claimed that a variety of diseases could be cured through a combination of vegetarian diet, fresh air, massage, exercise and bathing... It also offered uh, electrotherapy and hydrotherapy, including an, and I quote, electric massage. Sounds a little Gwyneth Paltrow, but this approach to medical treatment wasn't unusual at the time. If you just look into the history of spas, you know, throughout the country, 19th century, early 20th century, there's lots of these spas. And, you know, Rotorua is obvious because of the hot pools and so on. So there's a lot of... um, you know, trekking to these places for health reasons and the like. It's not an unusual thing. I think what was un- more stunning was the fact that it was, it's a big place, huge surrounds. Um, it was two, it's a two-storey place, so it was expensive to run. The home actually sounds a bit more like a country club than a doctor's office. Residents could play billiards and listen to the gramophone. Edith and Hilmar often played music on the grand piano and patients even took part in fencing matches. The other thing which made the Lehman home unusual, of course, was that it was owned and run entirely by women. Dr Huntley financed it. Denival was a key assistant and Sarah Wom- Womersley was the main matron until her death in 1913, I think it was. The ambition of the Lehman home, as well as Dr Huntley's personal reputation, meant it got a lot of attention from high society. Even Prime Minister Bill Massey stopped by to give a speech at its official opening in December 1912. The Honourable W.F. Massey said he had much pleasure in declaring the home open. His pleasure and interest were greater since he had been informed that it was the first home of its kind in the British Dominions, and the first home in the world to be entirely conducted by lady doctors. Hilmar Danival's connection to the Lehman home gave her a boost in the eyes of the rich and powerful. Even before Hilmar's arrival, Dr Huntley was mixing with high society. So when Hilmar arrived, she had a ready-made entree to all of those connections and women's societies, um, social events, events at government house. And she fitted in really well because she was a super educated um, woman. I mean, she clearly had great musical talent. There are reports of her doing soul recitals on the piano at the Opera House. She could talk about the famous musicians of the day and had met some of them because she she had um, 
attended a famous school in Leipzig, Conservatory of Music. By all accounts, Danival was a fascinating person to talk to. Like we said, she'd claimed to have travelled all over the world as a medical researcher and journalist. In fact, as a journalist, she said she'd witnessed the Battle of Tsushima, a famous confrontation where the Russian Navy received a stunning defeat from their Japanese opponents. And she was able to give you know, ripping accounts of her travels and her experiences from a point of view of an educated person. Uh, she fitted in well. In fact, Hjalmar Danival fitted in so well that nobody in high society seemed to raise any objection with how she dressed. There are several photos of Danival during her time in New Zealand, including one of her standing outside the layman home. The first thing you might notice is her hair. It's cut short and slicked back. I guess that was probably practical for her work as a doctor, but it was unusual for women of that era to have short hair. She also has solid black boots and a long skirt reaching down to her ankles. But then, on top of that dress, she's wearing a jacket and waistcoat, complete with a fob watch on a chain and a cravat, clothing which in those days would have been worn almost exclusively by men. And it seems some people did get confused by Danival's clothes when she first arrived in Wellington, and maybe a little angry too. She claimed that when she was waiting you know, in the street with Sarah Womersley, that a male passerby had accused her of being um, a man dressed as a woman. And whether that happened or not, who knows, but she said that's why she went to the police. Danival went down to the Lambton Quay police station and asked for a letter clarifying that she was in fact a woman and that she had permission to dress the way she did. And if that request made you double take, then... Well, it wasn't illegal for women to wear male clothing in New Zealand, but there were laws against female cross-dressing in the United States and many European countries. So maybe she thought it was just better to be safe than sorry. Unfortunately, the police weren't much help. At first, they refused to believe she was a woman and insisted on having a police matron look under her skirt to be sure. And then this matron then said that she wasn't that sure and had to look again and then eventually decided, oh yes, no, this definitely is a woman. And even after that ordeal, the cops wouldn't give her the letter she asked for. But Danival was nothing if not determined. She repeatedly visited the police station asking for official permission to wear male clothing. She went back to the police on a number of occasions because she said um, she was wanting to research venereal diseases and she had done this in her past. Specifically, Danival said she wanted to research syphilis, a sexually transmitted disease which can cause a variety of horrific symptoms, including insanity and eventually death. She claimed to have travelled all over the world as a medical researcher looking for a cure to this disease, funded by a wealthy Austrian entrepreneur called Hugo Fischer. Danival said that when she'd done this work overseas, she often disguised herself as a man. It allowed her to access places which were usually off-limits to respectable middle-class women. You know, if she was clearly identified as a woman mixing with a prostitute, they might have thought she was a prostitute as well, and so she wouldn't be able to do what she was supposed to be doing. But it seems unlikely Helmar Danival only wore male clothing so she could carry out medical research. After all, she seems to have dressed this way all the time, not just when she was hanging out in brothels. As we mentioned earlier, one explanation could be that Danival had a trans or non-binary identity which she expressed through clothing, 
But Julie Glamizina doesn't think that's likely. After all, when people mistook her for a man, she corrected them, and even asked the police for that letter proving she was female. Instead, Julie thinks Danaville's style of dress was part of a wider feminist movement known as dress reform. Women said, well, we don't want these big long clothes because they constrain us and we can't move around and it impedes us from doing stuff and from going out and about. And it was a sign of um, progressive views Mm. um, for women to dress in that way. This dress reform movement got a lot of negative press. It played into stereotypes of feminist women as mannish and unfeminine. Julie Glamisner included this fantastic little cartoon in her book, which was published in 1905 in New York. It depicts a woman dressed almost exactly like Danaville, and it has a little poem at the bottom. The masculine woman. She is mannish from her shoes to her hat, coat, collars, stiff shirt, and cravat. She'd wear pants in the street to make her complete, but she knows the law won't stand for that. That last line's obviously a reference to those anti-cross-dressing laws in America and parts of Europe. Anyway, for the first few years after Danival's arrival, she seems to have been a popular figure in high society in spite of how she dressed, or maybe for some because of it. But with the outbreak of the First World War, things started to change. In 1914, an anonymous tipster sent a letter to the Solicitor General claiming Hjalmar Danival was a German spy. Detective Sergeant William McIlvaney was assigned to the case and questioned Danival. She insisted she wasn't German, but instead Danish. She said she was born in a town north of Copenhagen in 1862. But there was a slight problem with that, because two years after Danival's birth in 1864, there was a war which transferred control of the place Danival was born to Germany. As Danaville admitted, technically that might make her a German subject. And there was another admission in the interview which made the cops suspicious. Danaville said she'd studied medicine at Zurich University under a false name, Joanna Schmidt. She said she did this to escape scrutiny from her mother, who didn't approve of female doctors. But still, her use of a fake name would have raised some eyebrows. And those eyebrows were raised even further when Danaville laid out the rest of her life story, you know, claiming to have travelled the globe researching syphilis and working as a journalist. And of course she gave herself kudos, I think, by calling herself Von Danaville, so that sounded elevated. Of course the police um, had another view. They knew that when she arrived in Wellington on the ship's manifest, she was described as a domestic So that didn't quite fit with, well, I'm a doctor. Hjalmar Danaville didn't have any documents to back up her story. No birth certificate, no graduation certificate, no letters from previous employers or family, no copies of articles she'd written. She claimed to have destroyed all her personal documents in 1910 because she intended to commit suicide. Detective Sergeant McIlvaney didn't find that explanation very convincing, and neither did his boss, Superintendent John Allison. Allison said, I still have a suspicion that Von Danville is male and an imposter. 
Bondanville called on me about three times afterward on various pretexts, which convinced me she is a thorough humbug and fraud. She's just the person who would take up such a job as a political spy or pimp. So there were a lot of raised eyebrows, but Danaville hadn't committed a crime and there was no actual evidence of her spying. So the cops had to let the matter rest. But the pressure kept rising, and not just from the police. As the years went on, the Lehman home came under increasing scrutiny from health authorities. The Inspector General of Mental Health really wanted to bring it down, and he said so. I think the mainstream establishment, which was mostly you know, men, they didn't really like the idea of a woman running such an establishment, and they didn't like the idea of such an establishment. And they tried to get Dr Huntley on technical breaches, which they did do. The problem was that the Lehman Home wasn't supposed to treat patients with mental health issues without informing the authorities. The Inspector General fined the Lehman Home for breaching that rule at least once. There were also several patients who committed suicide while staying at the home, although the coroner found the home hadn't done anything wrong in any of those cases. Regardless, the reputation and financial success of the Lehman Home started to suffer. By 1915, Edith Huntley and Hilmar Danival were both being sued for unpaid debts. But the real catastrophe came in 1916, when a woman called Mary Bond checked herself into the Lehman home for treatment. Mary Bond came from the Stewart family in uh, Whanganui, and they were very, very well known. She and her family's activities were in the local papers, weddings, um, social events and so on. You just go in and you see them there. One of those stories covered the high society wedding of Mary to another prominent New Zealander, Edward Bond, the vicar of Martinborough. But Mary's marriage hit some very choppy waters in 1911 because Edward started an affair with one of his parishioners. Now, she didn't know, but she suspected and that was the cause of some distress to her. And he would, he would tell her, no, there's nothing, there's nothing happening, there's nothing wrong, etc., etc." And eventually she got into such a distressed state um, that he booked her into the Lehman home. Mary Bond settled in at the Lehman home and struck up a close relationship with Hilmar Danaville. And Danaville seems to have seen through the situation pretty quickly. Hilmar confronted Edward Bond to say, she thinks that you've uh, had an affair. You know, have you? Did you? And he he confessed that, yes, he had. So all the things that she had been thinking, that his wife had been thinking um, or suspecting, you know, she had cause to be worrying about her marriage. Danaville took this revelation back to Mary Bond, who was understandably extremely upset. I mean, it's hard to imagine a more cast-iron example of gaslighting than this. Hilma immediately um, encouraged her to start divorce proceedings, and she actually gave evidence during the divorce, and that was reported in the newspapers. This high society divorce was like 
catnip for the newspapers. They couldn't get enough of it, especially the tabloid New Zealand Truth. The bond of holy matrimony, which was supposed to have bound Mary Blanche Oliphant to her Edward Thomas Bond, seemed to have slipped, as he had admitted something naughty subsequent thereto. Thomas admitted that he'd been practising the art of adultery with a lady named Anna Kroll. Mary gave her evidence in private, which was to the effect that he had admitted the sweet sin which formed the kernel of the charge. And the story only got more dramatic because around the same time the divorce was happening, Mary Bond's mother died. Mary Bond was due for an inheritance of some thousands of pounds, which was a huge, huge sum. And Edward Bond made a complaint to the police. Obviously, he was angry um, at what had happened. Edward Bond claimed Danville had somehow tricked his wife into filing for divorce in order to seize the inheritance money for herself. He claimed that if not for Danville, Mary would surely have forgiven him. And while those claims didn't help his divorce case, they reawakened suspicions of this mysterious female doctor. The military insisted on a new investigation into allegations of spying. As part of this investigation, the police confiscated some of Danaville's letters. Now, these didn't have anything in them which suggested she was a spy, but they did reveal very close relationships between Danaville and some of her female patients, including Mary Bond, who seemed to have regularly written heartfelt letters to her. Maybe the most interesting letter comes from a patient called Helen Spencer. She wrote, Oh, my Hilma, I do want you so. I must let my heart's love flow out to you in writing. It will relieve me. All today you have been more than usually in my mind, and life without you is difficult. How I long to go to you. Perhaps tonight you may be thinking of me. You may be near me in the spirit, as I believe you often are. Or I could not at other times feel so content, so happy, so secure in the possession of that treasure. But tonight, though I'm fighting against the boredom of everything, I feel so restless, so aching for a sight of you. Reading these letters, they clearly sound romantic. But we have to be a bit careful, because it was actually reasonably common for late 19th and early 20th century women to write these sort of passionate letters to each other, even in cases where there's no suggestion of any sexual connection. You know, again, you have to put yourself in the time as much as you can and um, and look at, you know, is that unusual? Or I don't know what people would think about what we write today, especially very skimpy texts, what do they mean? Emojis, <laughs> um, what are these things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's very strange. But uh, in her case, I think some, yeah, some of the letters are exactly that, the language and the style of the time. One of the fun facts I learned while working on this podcast is that historians call this romantic friendship, which I love. We should bring back romantic friendship. We also need to consider that the layman home seems to have offered treatments relating to sexual problems. And so that would have been alarming to the police. 
um, you know, the why though? The, because she's a doctor with a with an interest in you know venereal disease. Like, of course, she's going to talk yeah. about sexual matters. Exactly, but again, if you're if they were looking to sort of you know get this person, who is this person who's in our midst? Is she a spy? Then all of these things add up and make a case. So, with all those caveats in place, the question I'm sort of dodging around. Was Hjalmar Danival lesbian? Very possibly. And this isn't just based on Hjalmar Danival's romantic-sounding letters from Helen Spencer and Mary Bond. Remember, Danival explained she destroyed all her personal documents back in 1910 because she'd planned to commit suicide. She said she'd tried to kill herself because she'd lost touch with a close friend she'd met in England. A young Russian woman who'd been forced to return home by her father and placed in an asylum. Danaville showed the police the scars around her neck from where she'd tried to hang herself. Julie Glomazina says there's possibly more to this story than Danaville was letting on. Were they lovers? And she's trying to track this woman down to, you know, get back with her, but the family has intervened and they've taken her away. It's unclear if the police had suspicions about Danaville's sexuality. If they did, they never raised it explicitly in their reports, and it wouldn't have been illegal anyway. Instead, the cops focused on other dodgy aspects of Hjalmar Danaville's story. They reported their suspicions all the way up the chain till they reached the desk of the Solicitor General, John Salmond, whose own report on this case was nothing short of damning. Her identity is wholly mysterious. She possesses no papers of any kind to indicate who she is or her previous history, nor is she able to give any reference to any person who knows who she is. She is in all probability a German. Salmon then went on to talk about the confusion over Danival's gender. It is very doubtful whether she is a man or a woman. She is very masculine in appearance and habits. There's much reason to suspect that she may be a man masquerading as a woman. This was a pretty unfair accusation. Danaville herself had asked the police to certify she was a woman. She had agreed to a physical examination by that police matron who confirmed she was telling the truth. Then Salmond turned to the investigation of her role at the Lehman home. Her actions in the conduct of the Lehman home give rise to the gravest suspicion of her bona fides. She there acquires extraordinary personal influence over the patients, especially women, and the police reports as to the case of Mrs Bond gives much ground for the suggestion she uses undue influence over weak-minded patients with respect to their property. I'll just pause here and point out that this undue influence basically refers to Danaville exposing Mary Bond's husband for cheating and suggesting she get a divorce so that her sizable inheritance didn't fall into the hands of the guy who'd cheated on her. To me, that just sounds like good advice. But to John Salmond, it was more reason for suspicion. The new commissioner of police, John O'Donovan, was also suspicious and insisted on interrogating Danaville personally. Just like Danaville's previous interrogators, O'Donovan was clearly hung up on the way she dressed. Were you dressed as you are now? I was not dressed in the same clothing. Were you wearing a man's hat and coat and an ordinary vest and collar of a man? Yes, I think so. And a skirt. Did any question arise between you and Mr Ellison as regards whether you were a man or a woman? He said there were no objections to my wearing men's clothing so long as he knew I was a woman. 
O'Donovan insisted on getting the police surgeon to certify beyond doubt that Danaville was in fact a woman. Danaville consented, and the doctor confirmed that, yes, once again, she was. And I know this unrelenting focus on Danaville's gender and manner of dress makes her feel like a very sympathetic figure from a modern perspective, and I think there is a very big dollop of sexism involved in this story. But there were aspects of Hjalmar Danaville's story which were genuinely suspicious. No proof of birth, no one who could say who she really was, other than Dr Huntley, who probably didn't know the full story either. Hilmar Danaville may really have been a spy, or at least was trying to hide something in her past. Certainly parts of her story are extremely hard to believe. But try as they might, the cops couldn't prove anything. They went through all her letters, grilled her on the details of her supposed travels, looking to trip her up and catch her in a lie. But they could never quite prove she was lying or up to anything nefarious. And as Julie Glamisner points out in her book, Danaville's stories were improbable, but not impossible. There are plenty of documented cases of so-called lady adventurers who travelled the world getting up to all sorts of crazy hijinks. I think my favourite story was Kate Marsden, who was an English nurse who spent a year travelling across Siberia on a dog sled because she was looking for a herb that could cure leprosy. Setting aside, you know, whether that was a good way to do research, <laughs> the fact of um, having an interest in finding a cure or finding more about this disease is not unusual for the time. And honestly, even if Danaville could have proved her story, it may not have been enough to save her. You'll remember from our episode on Charles Mackey that anti-German hysteria reached a fever pitch in 1916 with the sinking of the Lusitania, killing over 2,000 men, women and children. Anti-German riots broke out in towns and cities across the country and the government cracked down hard on anyone with German heritage. Famously, when George von Ziedlitz, a German-born professor at Victoria University, tried to protest this unfair treatment, the government passed the Alien Enemy Teachers Act specifically to remove him from his job. Hundreds of people with German heritage were locked up in internment camps. There was actually more reason to suspect Hilmar Danaville of being a German spy than most of these other people. On May 4, 1917, Solicitor General John Salmond wrote to the Chief of General Staff. There is grave grounds for suspicion that this person is a mischievous and dangerous imposter who ought in the public interest to be interned during the war. I presume it would not be difficult to make special arrangements for the reception of a woman on Soames Island. You might remember that in a previous episode of Black Sheep, we talked about the German Navy captain Felix von Lochner, who was captured and held in an internment camp on Motuihe Island in the Hauraki Gulf until he organised a daring escape in December 1917. We mentioned that Motuihe was a pretty awesome place to be a POW. Prisoners could go swimming, sunbathing, organise games and other activities. 
The internment camp on Matthew Soames Island was nothing like the one on Motuihe. The island was run by, it was under the control of uh, Major Matheson, who was quite a vindictive, punitive superintendent. And the soldiers who were part of the contingent there, some of them were petty criminals. They had bashed up other German people who'd been incarcerated on the island. They'd take them down to a part of the island that was not you know, visible and bash them. And so there were a lot of complaints about the conditions and what was going on over there. We don't know if Danaville was abused or mistreated on Matthew Soames. The only records of her time on the island are transcripts of further interrogations from police and military authorities, none of whom had any luck in pulling apart her fantastical life story. The public reaction to her incarceration was divided. The Evening Post published this unsympathetic article in May 1917. The voice of gossip has insisted for a long time past that this lady, who claims to be of Danish nationality, would find more congenial company on Soames Island. Her eccentricities of attire made her a well-known figure in the city. She had her hair clipped short and she usually wore a hat, coat, vest, collar and boots of the masculine pattern in conjunction with a woman's skirt. But one of Danaville's former patients, J.A. Fothergill, wasn't impressed with that article. In response, he wrote, The above, I should think, hardly does the citizens of Wellington justice, or else the voice of gossip must be getting hysterical. There must be hundreds of grateful patients, of whom I am one, throughout New Zealand who owe the doctor thanks for unwearied skilled attention and deep womanly sympathy. That she affected a masculine style of dress is merely proof that her mind had risen superior to and emancipated from the tyranny and vanity of fashion. And Mr Fothergill wasn't the only one writing in support of Hilmar Danaville. Her friends made representations and there were letters to the editor and saying, no, she's really helped me, I'm a former client, this is you know, terrible. And then behind the scenes, I think people worked to get her released as well. In the end, Danaville only spent six weeks on Matthew Soames Island before being released. Part of the reason for that release might be reports Danaville was unwell and suffering a nervous breakdown. The authorities may have been anxious to avoid allegations a vulnerable, lone woman had been abused on the island. Danaville was released into the care of Dr Edith Huntley and told not to travel more than two miles from the layman home. But she did. She went to the South Island, and that was reported, and it was reported in the newspapers. Why, why is she here? She's meant to be, you know, not, not travelling around. Oops, she's in, our, she's in Timaru. Why is she there? Well, she was probably there to visit Helen Spencer, the woman who sent her that romantic-sounding letter we read out earlier. Helen Spencer lived in Geraldine. She was suffering an acute illness and would die shortly after Danaville arrived. It seems likely Hilmar travelled to Timaru to be with her in her final days. Helen Spencer was also a close friend of Mary Bond, who was also getting an awful lot of unwanted attention from the press in the wake of her dramatic divorce. Where could they go in this country? Where could they go after World War I? Um, What could they do? Um, They were well known. It was all reported in the newspapers. Mary and Hilmar clearly shared a close connection. 
because later that year, Hilmar Danival, Mary Bond and Mary's three children would board a ship together and leave New Zealand for good. They went to Sydney and they were there for a year and then they went to San Francisco in about 1919. Them sort of travelling off together seems I mean, pretty incontrovertible evidence that there's a romantic relationship there. I, I think so. I think so. Hilmar Danival would spend the rest of her life in San Francisco. Mary and her children would eventually become US citizens. But it wasn't exactly a happily ever after story. In 1925, Hilmar Danival was arrested for practising medicine without a licence. She'd got involved in promoting this kind of quack medical treatment, which had uncanny parallels with the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos scheme. We've made it possible to run comprehensive laboratory tests from a tiny sample or a few drops of blood to eliminate the tubes and tubes of... Just like Elizabeth Holmes, Danival and other practitioners had a special box which they claimed could diagnose any illness using a single drop of blood. Although they said that they could also treat that illness with that single drop of blood, so they're, they're one-upping Elizabeth Holmes there. It was all centred around the guy who developed this box, a doctor called Albert Abrams. The Scientific American and the American Medical Association um, just thought he was a charlatan. And so they did this experiment and they sent in a sample of blood and said, you know, what is this then? Tell us what this is. And he said, oh, well, this is, you know, a human with blah, blah, blah. And then they said, well, actually, we sent you chicken blood, so that's a load of rubbish. Um, and <laughs> so he was discredited. I'm sort of simplifying it a bit, but... Um, you know, there was quite a lot of interest in his theories and in his machines. Unfortunately for Hilmar and Mary, this interest didn't translate into financial success. Mary Bond's inheritance was swallowed up by the cost of supporting herself, Hilmar and the children. Mary and Hilmar both ended up bankrupt and seemed to have separated around 1926. When Danival's body was found by Dr. Roy Copeland in 1930, her pockets contained 15 cents in cash, a receipt for a pawn shop, and a string of unpaid bills. The newspapers may have claimed her death brought an end to her masquerading as a man, but that wasn't really true. She'd made no secret about being a woman wearing masculine-looking clothing. In fact, in 1923, she took a legal case which led to the abolition of a law which made it a crime for women in San Francisco to wear trousers. So, what do we make of the extraordinary life of Hilmar Danival? Was she a spy, a fraud, or just a person who struggled to fit the expectations of her time? She comes across as... Um you know, she's wanting to help in the work at the Lehman Home that was about health and improving people, getting them back to health, mental, physical. And, and she, she was liked by uh, Mary Bond's child and children. So she seems a kind, kind person. And the letters back to her from her clients are praising her and saying how much they've helped her and how much, you know, they appreciate it. You know, she clearly touched people. 
in a positive way. I think she was just trying to survive. Big thanks to Julie Glamuziner for joining me this episode. Her book is Spies and Lies, The Mysterious Dr. Danival. For more Black Sheep, make sure to follow and subscribe on your favourite podcasting app and check out RNZ's excellent stable of content. I'll do another plug for Mr Little Meets Mr Big. It's a story of murder, an undercover police operation and questions over whether it caught the right man. Black Sheep is produced and hosted by me, William Ray. The sound engineer is William Saunders and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our voice actors were John Gerritsen, Simon Dickinson, Heather O'Carroll, Croy Hawkins, Giles Beckford and Duncan Smith. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.